Hello and welcome to Filibustering Museology, a podcast series where we discuss what museum specialists do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history programs at Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. Now we have a mob of Californians here today, either native Californians or transplant Californians. As always, I am joined by James Fennessy, the Associate Dean of Faculty at SNHU, and Susie Chung, an adjunct instructor and team lead at SNHU. The three of us are talking today to David De La Torre, the Curator of Exhibitions at the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco, a Senior Museum Associate at Community Arts International, and a bunch of other titles. We are talking about David's life and career, his perspectives on museology, and the best way for students to break into museum-related careers. What is your name and what do you do? My name is David De La Torre. I'm an independent consultant and advisor to museums and cultural centers. I hold the position of, of curator of exhibitions on an adjunct basis for the Jewish Community Center here in San Francisco. And I'm also a senior museum associate with a nonprofit group called Community Arts International. And our current project is the Guam Museum. So David, could do you talk a little bit about your educational background and experiences that led you to these roles? I mean, you have you have a number of different roles that cover <laughs> a number of different topics and regions of the world, and I'd love to hear how, how you moved into this position and really gained an interest in all these various areas. It's always fun to talk about yourself, <laughs> right, and to look back. That's why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you've given me this, this great opportunity to, uh, to look back on when I look at my resume. It's, I've been in this business for over 40 years, um, working for museums, mainly art museums uh, and some history museums. I started my career at the DeYoung Museum in the 1970s, and I was also enrolled, interestingly enough, I was the first enrolled museum studies student, the very first at the time, at Lone Mountain College, which is now part of the University of San Francisco. University of San Francisco has a, a very dynamic museum studies program which has evolved over these over this period and so I had kind of a dual I had I was fortunate because I had a job and I had museum studies classes that I took at night to complement my work at the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco the MH Young Museum in Golden Gate Park and that's where I began and then over time I've had I was counting them up from my, I've, I've worked for 10 institutions during my career. And so that has afforded me a lot of opportunity to acquire knowledge and information about small, medium, large size institutions, the roles that people play in these institutions. And I've, I've worn many hats over the years. So I'm, I'm excited to share that with you. So I'm very interested in the classes that were taught in the 1970s in museum studies. It also looks like you did an MA in museum studies from John F. Kennedy University as well. Yes. Cool to hear what were there aspects of theoretical museology discussions within the courses and a part of the curriculum as a whole? That's a good question, Susie. I happen to have been interviewed just in the last year from my college, from my university, which is the University of San Francisco. And let me explain. At the time that I 
enrolled as a first museum studies student in San Francisco, there were, there were very few museum studies programs on the West Coast where I grew up. There was one in LA and at, that was just budding at the, at the University of Southern California, I believe. But most of the programs were on the East Coast. So when I interviewed recently to sort of do as we're doing today, we're going over my career, we reviewed the curriculum at the time that I went to school, which is in, which was in the which was in the 1970s, and the curriculum as it is today. And the point was that the curriculum hasn't changed that much. My program, Lone Mountain, that program became John F. Kennedy University Museum Studies, which I graduated from. And then more recently, John F. Kennedy has that program has faded. The university is still there, but but USF has now assumed the role here in the Bay Area as a museum studies master's program in museum studies. There's also one at San Francisco State, I might mention. Yes, I, I taught there. You taught there, right. So you know that program as well. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the two main programs now in, in the Bay Area that are available. But to answer your question, our program was comprised of basic entry-level courses that had to do with basic understandings of conservation, registration, curatorial activities, curatorial work, administration, and management. That was sort of the core focus at the time. I think those are the basic courses that give an individual an understanding of, of what it is to be a museum professional. And you, what I have found is, you know, as you enter the field, as you become engaged in the field, you sort of begin to decide what role you want to play, what interests you the most. And for some, it's conservation. For some, it's registration. For some, it's, for me, it was an interest in doing exhibitions and curating and then eventually becoming a director. And I was, I, I must admit early on, I wanted to become a museum director. And I am happy that that over time, I was given the opportunity a couple of times to direct institutions and to play a major role in, in the development of regional. And then I worked for, I've worked for midsize, as I say, small, midsize and large institutions. So I have a broad experience in that. Your career sounds inspirational. <laughs> I've had a I've had a really great time with my with my work, and I think that may be an underlying theme of our talk today. As it evolves, I would challenge young folks to think of this is my common question today: is what is your passion? What do you want to do with that passion or those passions? How do you want to translate that into a working environment? Were there any history and philosophy of museum aspect in the curriculum back in the 1970s? Well, actually, there was a foundation course, a required course, that spoke to the history of museology, the history of museums, what a museum is, you know, how it evolved over time from, from the... Uh, cabinet of curiosities, if you will, to what we what we know as a full-fledged museum today, full-blown museum. So there was that kind of historical aspect and philosophy of 
museum studies, museology is is a very is a very new academic focus relatively. There was a struggle back in the as I remember back in the 60s and 70s for us as museum professionals to kind of define this new profession because prior to that it, it didn't have an academic link, if you will. If you were going to work in a museum, you probably had a general a discipline like history, like art history, like science that may have propelled you in a, in a museum career in the 20th century. But there wasn't this museum studies phenomenon came on, you know, in the, in the 1960s, in the 1970s, in a bigger way in the United States. Even though, as they say, in, in the East Coast, there were, there were certain programs at NYU and Cooper Hewitt and, and George Washington University that were in place over time and were kind of small programs and were growing. Uh, so you were saying that you were, even from the get-go, you were interested in becoming a museum director and taking on kind of an administrative role. And back in those days, if they didn't really have a very developed museum studies program, how did how did you prepare for that kind of thing? Did you take, I don't know, MBA-type classes to become a better uh-huh. familiar with administrator roles? Or how did you make that happen? Really good question. I should have got an MBA, if I look back, I, I, I think if I had more business courses, that would have been a benefit. My, my career, I had extraordinary opportunities early on, and I found myself in leadership positions at a very young age. So it was an on-the-job learning process. And then as my work evolved, I took advantage of things like the Getty Museum Management Institute, and other courses and seminars with the the AAM, which is now the Alliance, and the Art Museum Directors Association, which I became involved with. So it was kind of an on-the-job learning and and acquiring information, acquiring knowledge in that way. So it looks like your thesis was on management, your master's thesis, and yes. it was. It looks like it was a business approach. What was the title of your master's thesis? It was, (laughs) that's a really good question. It was a focus on, at the time, there was a lot of emphasis being placed on the Japanese model for museum management by objectives. And so my thesis was delving into that subject matter and applying the principles of of what the Japanese had defined at the time in the 1970s to working models here in the Bay Area of institutions, of, of the style of, of administration and, ma- and management that, that the players had at those times. So it was a, just an analysis of, of oh, how wow. places operated, yeah. And so when you were, so you did a, your MA study on organization, and, and so you kind of did a self-constructed I keep using MBA, but that's not the right term. But, you know, administ- uh-huh. learning how to do administrative type jobs. You've kind of trained yourself uh, on the job, that kind of thing. So when you first got involved in working in museums, I imagine you must have started off somewhere lower on the on the rung. Did you work your way up the organization or were you able to come in straight into an administrative role? How did that evolve? Mm, good question. I worked my way up and there were opportunities that presented themselves with jobs that helped me get more experience. When I was a student 
and when I started my work at the de Young Museum, that was the era of King Tut. That was when Cyril Magnin and Ian McGibbon White was the director of the Fine Arts Museums, and they brought King Tut to San Francisco. And I worked in the what was at that time the art school, the de Young Museum Art School. And it was such a dynamic place. My boss, Elsa Cameron, was really um, one of the one of the first real museum educators of the time. She was highly admired nationally. And we had a staff of, in the art school alone, we had a staff of 30, 35 um, young people teaching art. And then we had a downtown center. At that time, there was a proliferation of branch museums for the major museums like the Whitney in New York and then Elsa started a downtown center in San Francisco that was at the address was 651 Howard, which is now the John Bergruen Gallery. And then we moved to the Embarcadero Center, um, where we had a huge gallery space, and we did thematic educational exhibitions. So we got experience in museum education, which has always been one of my great loves for this field. And then we got really solid experience with putting together exhibitions, thematic exhibitions. We drew on collections in the Bay Area, and Elsa got stuff from all over the country, actually, for our, for our exhibition program. And that's, in order for me to get that job, I was unemployed, and I was on the CETA program, which was the Comprehensive Employment Training Act that President Johnson had put in place. I wish we still had such a program today. It was a program that employed artists to work in institutional settings to get job experience. And that provided me my my job experience at the de Young Museum. And then from there, I was hired to be the director of development this is my, my first major institutional position, for the Triton Museum of Art in Santa Clara in the South Bay, in the heart of Silicon Valley at the time. There was a seven-acre park site in the civic center of Santa Clara where the Triton Museum was founded by an attorney in San Jose who loved art, and he put these little pods. They were like octagonal um, structures. There were four of them in this park, and that started the museum. And then the dream of building a real art museum facility emerged, and I became the development director. And my colleagues, Joe Farb-Hernandez, who's now the gallery director at San Jose State, and Mark Destu, who is a, a wonderful artist and graphic designer, it was sort of like we were, we had this highly creative period, and we we raised the money to build a new museum in the park grounds. And at that time, Silicon Valley was just budding and just getting going. And there were no form, you know, everybody saw the money that was starting to come through um, into the economy in the South Bay in San Francisco. And, and the arts organizations, they, everyone was chomping at the bits to access that money. And through this project with the Triton Museum, we were very young, very young staff. We were able to access Hewlett-Packard Corporation 
David Packard and Luce, David and Lucille Packard became our patrons, and they were so wonderful to us. And they took on the museum project at Santa Clara, and we built a brand new, a thirty thousand square foot state of the art museum, which you can visit today, which is very beautiful. I I will say, with all modesty aside, it's it's a beautiful、uh, new building. And so that sort of that started my career, and then. I was cultivated to become the second executive director to the Mexican Museum in the 1980s, and that began the most exciting time of my career, directing what was the museum that I had done my internship early on when I was a student at Lone Mountain College for the Museum Studies program. Internships, volunteering at institutions. This is a way for young people aspiring to work in museums to become involved, to become engaged, to become a known, you know, for for skills to become known. I, I this is, would be my strong recommendation to young people thinking of going into this field: is you've got to be ready to volunteer, to have an internship, and in, hopefully in conjunction with your. With your academic studies, that will complement your academic studies and get your feet wet, so that people begin to know what your skill set is. And that's what happened to me, and that's how I became director of of a community-based organization, which is still only it's only forty forty-five years old, but had such a perfect mission statement. The mission of the Mexican Museum has always been its strongest point because. It's always survived over time because people feel very strongly about having a Mexican museum in San Francisco, in California, to to serve the needs of the Latino community and the wider community in in our metropolitan area. So my first executive director position was a time of great challenge. But also great excitement, and I was able to achieve significant advancement for the museum at that time. Even though I was young and fairly inexperienced in my in my work, it, it, it afforded me many opportunities, which to this day I I really appreciate and respect. That's a rather long-winded first part of my career. That was it was a very it was a very exciting time in. The nineteen, the the late nineteen sixties and the early nineteen seventies, there was a proliferation of community-based arts organizations and museums, like the Studio Museum in Harlem, like El Museo del Barrio in New York City, what is now the National Museum of Mexican Art in Chicago, and the the Mexican Museum in San Francisco, and La Plaza in Los Angeles. There was this proliferation of institutions that became sister organization, and it became a networking that helped to to found these very important minority institutions that were dedicated to showing the work of people of color that were not receiving, for whatever reason, attention in the major institutions of our times. Major institutions like the one where I received my training at the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco, the De Young, had been criticized, you know, at that time by the founder of the Mexican Museum, Peter Rodriguez, for not showing the work of 
of Mexican and Mexican-American artists. So it was just a, an extraordinary period of creativity and um, galvanization of art programs for people of color across the country. And, and I was a part of that, and I really am very fortunate to have been involved with these, these smaller institutions at the time when I started my career. That's great. And that must have been an exciting time to be involved in that. I mean, the 70s, 80s, I mean, that was such a huge moment for the expansion of opportunities for, you know, people of color and artists of color and all of that. That's great. Precisely. You say the word expansion. It reminds me of a program at the National Endowment for the Arts called Expansion Arts. A.B. Spellman, A.B. Spellman led that program. And one of the one of the wonderful things that happened in my career at that time with many of my colleagues as well, we were chosen, we were called upon to come to Washington to help divvy up grant money, to help um, these new organizations to grow and to serve their communities. And we we were part of a national network of young professionals that helped to create this this new awareness this new these new possibilities for for collecting and for showing the work of and and for and for the historic for galvanizing history we're talking about history today as well the history of our of our country and and the rise of of an appreciation for ethnic based museums and arts organizations since we're preparing for the SNHU and ICAFOM online symposium on defining the museum of the 21st century, I wanted to ask you what your experience has been as a board member of ICOM US and what international co committee conferences, including ICAFOM, where I had the pleasure of meeting you at the annual symposium, you know, a, a fellow countryman amongst others in Cuba last year. I believe there were four of us. Yes. Good question, Susie. You know, let's see, it's kind of like the pebble in the pool, my, my association with ICOM. The pebble in the pool beginning with, you know, my career with the Mexican Museum, with the Honolulu Museum of Art, which we'll speak about perhaps as we, as this conversation evolves. And that brought me first to the American Association of Museums, which has now become the American Alliance of Museums. And those annual meetings, you know, I've been a, I've been a participant at AAM. I think I've missed <laughs> maybe two or three meetings in the last 20, 25 years. And that's been my, my opportunity to meet every year with, with my museum colleagues across the country and to talk about our challenges and our problems and come up with solutions to them. Then ICOM, the international as you know, it's, this is ICOM, the International Council of Museums, based in Paris, which is our international professional group. I have been on the U.S. committee for ICOM for the last, I think it's 10 years now. And what interested me in that was just the branching out. Once, once I, I was very involved in American institutions for so long, and then because of, of Mexico and, and then my links with Mexico and, La and my interest in Mexico and Latin America, I, I had international networking that began to develop. I, some, a colleague told me 
my boss, he was my boss at the, one of my bosses at, at the De Young Museum, Tom Seligman. Thomas Seligman became the director of the Stanford University Art Museum. He has been a mentor of mine for, for many, and a friend for many years. He said, when you go to the AAM, go to the, the ICOM luncheon. I always go to the ICOM luncheon. And I started, I started going to the ICOM luncheons, and I started seeing how that networking opportunity and understanding the networking opportunity and the history of ICOM, which, by the way, ICOM was founded by an American. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't founded by by someone in in France or or away. It was founded by an American. Uh, and I became involved with that organization. And then, you know, Susie, the Havana Conference, the ICOFOM, was one of my first even though I've been involved for, for 10 years, one of my first committee uh, meetings outside of the United States. I had been to the triennial meeting in Milan, but I hadn't been involved. And now you roped me into ICOFOM. I was very, <laughs> I was very, I was very honored and very pleased to be in Havana for the meeting last October. But this is this is in keeping with I'm involved in an initiative now to create greater communication between our colleagues in Latin America and and ICOM colleagues in Latin America and the United States. Deborah Siska, who is a former public relations officer with the National Gallery, and I she sits on the U.S. committee. And we have been, for the last six years, I think it's about six years now, we've been working very hard, very diligently to establish communication links with our colleagues in Latin America with the thought of convening either physically or through other means, through other communications now to create more opportunities for intercultural um, relationships with our, with our colleagues there. So That's is that a rather the long, Latin American yeah. and Caribbean initiative, global yes. initiative for human rights? Is that what you're... No, not not human rights, but ICOM. You know, Susie, how there is a triennial meeting. The next one will be in Kyoto. Yes. So I was. That's a real opportunity for for people to uh, to know, young people to know. If you want to get involved internationally, that's going to be our next opportunity for that. And then... What I have learned about ICOM, which was told to me early on by my colleagues who have been who, on my U.S. committee, like Diana Pardue, who is the director of the, of the Statue of Liberty Ellis Island Museum. She has been involved with ICOM for, for many years and is now on the executive committee. She was elected to the executive committee. She said to us early on, get involved in a committee. And as you know, there are how many committees are there, Susie? There are like about 30 or 40 committees, affinity committees in ICOM for professionals, for young people entering the field, for well-seasoned professionals to get involved internationally with the challenges and the opportunities that museum professionals have around the world. And that's the way to to become involved, apart from the the big meeting that happens every three years. There are meetings like ICOFOM is doing now. You know, you have a lot of meetings going. You have a meeting coming up in Tehran, right? Should we have one in Tehran in October, and there's yes. one in Paris in June. And we have 
our SNU and ICAFON in September. So we have three going. And there's gonna, I think there will be more on the Museum Definition Symposium in Latin America as well, and perhaps in Russia. So, and that's going to be confirmed. Yes, I am, I am very impressed with what ICOFOAM is, has been able to do in terms of convening and the number of, the number of conferences that you are planning and have implemented. This is one of the most rewarding benefits of being a museum professional, I think, is to go to professional meetings. You can't do them, you, you know, depending on what position you hold and where, where you're working at the time. It's limited. Travel funds are very limited. It's difficult to get around and about. But you make a point of going at least to one, you know, you can go to regional meetings in the United States or you can go to national meetings in the United States once or twice and then pepper in some meetings on the international scene depending on what on, on what the institution that you're involved with, what their mission, what their purpose is. You know, some some institutions are more insular with, you know, serving the needs of, of a region or being focused on the United States. And others have natural affinity links to reach out internationally for sharing of collections, for sharing of, of knowledge that, that is meaningful on an international level. ICOM is, is, is a really is extraordinarily complex and an extraordinarily, there's many opportunities that await you out there to develop a professional career in museums and have great experiences with, with people on a one-to-one -one and working together to galvanize our profession as a profession, which is a relatively new profession as opposed to, you know, doctors, lawyers, accountants, that kind of, of work, which is well institutionalized. Okay. And so you have had a very full career and with a lot of different institutions and all of that. What advice do you have for listeners, probably history students, either recently graduated or maybe soon to graduate? What advice do you have for them to break into the types of fields that you've been working in over your career? Number one, I think how you shape your career has a lot to do with how you view the world and what your passions are. You can identify you know, what your passions are, it's going to lead you towards more specificity. And I think that coupled with being ready to get involved on a volunteer basis or as a formal internship with your university, um, with your undergraduate or your graduate program, are ways to explore the work of being a museum professional or the work of being a historian. How important is history in our world today? I've been thinking about this in anticipation of this interview. Someone said recently to me that history has to be reevaluated every 50 years for it to be relevant. And it made me stop and think, well, what is written in history books what is conveyed orally as oral history? Those two things are, are uh, is a very interesting dynamics that occurs between the two of them. And we learn 
after the fact when history is 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 written in the written form we learn things that happened that become a fact that are scientifically proven to be a fact we have a lot of discussion in our society today about you know the fake news the faked facts as opposed to the true facts and i think history therefore is a very important element of contemporary society that shouldn't be minimized shouldn't be it should be touted it should be um, held in esteem you know the work of historians the work of people that record our history because it's the foundation it's the basis of of a thriving society to have accurate information and that creates pride and that creates a whole series of of things that are that are good for modern society so you know i think looking for a job today is totally i can't i i sometimes i can't imagine what it is to be a young person today finding you know your your place i like to think this this is this is my challenge to to young people today and we had a great we had a great weekend and we with the march in 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 washington to hear the the young generation speaking out now because their education is is taking hold and and these are young you know thinking minds we have so many problems so many challenges how can we apply the intellect of young people to solve these issues not in 5 years not in 10 years strategic planning we can talk about strategic planning right for a museum for example it's like a, where do you want to be in 5 years where do you want to be in 10 years but some of the challenges of today could we have young people focusing as what happened this weekend i believe um focusing on the issue of the day and having solution for it not 5 years from now but for but tomorrow right there's a matter of expediency now that that there's a matter of urgency that we have in our society to come up with meaningful solutions and we have a lot of the technology that's available is is you know is it's such a huge opportunity for us to have a for, to have new work new jobs that we can't even imagine what they are so in a in a certain sense it's very challenging to find your way today but in another sense it's so exciting because you've got things that I didn't have at the time when I was looking for work at your fingertips so it's it's a challenge yet it's yet it's it's a it's an opportunity i'm the eternal optimist if you know if you know me well <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's interesting that you bring that up it's uh i've been reading a lot uh just to clarify since this episode probably won't go up for a couple of months but the mm-hmm. marches that we're talking about is the march for our lives the yes uh response yes, to the school shootings in parkland florida that have kind of taken on a new life of their own which have been st- suddenly spread to protests maybe not protest but marches across the country over the weekend. And so it is interesting to consider I've I've been reading a lot about the march and there's been a lot of people that have been drawing kind of analogies, not perfect analogies, but still drawing the analogy between student activism today versus student activism 50 years ago. And there's a big question of, you know, what's what's going to happen? Are we going to turn into another 1968 where suddenly in the next few years there's going to be massive changes in every aspect of our lives or is this a blip? It's kind of obviously it's hard to say right now, but it's looking like I mean this this is a this is taking on a, a life much bigger than 
anybody really thought. So it's very possible that we could end up seeing some very dramatic changes. So it's interesting that you mentioned history being reevaluated every 50 years or so, and we are right at the 50-year mark for the student protest movements of the late 60s, early 70s. There you go. Perfect observation. Thank you. That was perfect. <laughs> well, you're welcome. <laughs> so, David, do you have anything to recommend for us today? I want to recommend a book. The title is What Color Is Your Parachute? This was a pivotal book for me when I was an undergraduate, when I had I had just come back from a junior year abroad in Florence, Italy. I didn't know what I was doing. My, my mother always wanted me to be a doctor, be a medical something. I was, I was pursuing a physical therapy career. And then I read this book, and it sort of made you assess your assets. Who are your contacts? That's another important question of the day. You, you should remind each other, who are your contacts today? Susie, you're my new contact. Look what's happened, right? Looks what, look what you've done to bring us together. This book I read, it's more than 10 million copies sold in 28 countries, the world's most popular job search book updated for 2000, 2017, Taylor. Richard Bowles, Long Trusted Guidance, up-to-the-minute information. So that's my recommendation about just try to get a clarity in your mind about what your assets are and your interests that may lead you to a greater understanding of what your passion is for your work, for your career, for what you will be undertaking during your life. This is another, just another brief reflection. I'm going to be 70 years old this June. So my right don't believe you yep i'll be 70. my career has spanned this 40-year period right kids your life passes very quickly (laughs) i used to have an indian friend from india he says he used to say life is passing very quickly very quickly And, and i would just emphasize that to you because We have this window of opportunity to contribute to society and the betterment of mankind, et cetera, et cetera. And it it really evolves quite quickly. So be prepared. Know what your interests are. Know what your assets are. Ask yourself who your contacts are today that may help to lead you there and that you may help your colleagues to get where they want to go to. It's a it's a two way street of support. That's my recommendation. I think that's a great recommendation. It's uh, history students tend to get wrapped up in history, and so I think that's a good reminder that there are other resources available to people that are looking for jobs. Go look for, I don't know if this would qualify as like a self-help type book, but it certainly is a book for helping people to find careers, and so this can apply to anybody in any field, so I think that's a really good recommendation. Precisely. Uh, Susie, do you have anything for us today? Yes, first of all, we're very honored to have you here, David, and I wanted to connect something that you've been doing in the field currently with the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco with border issues, migration, immigration, public art, community murals, and your Latin American initiative, and the contemporary art exhibition at the Galleria de la Raza in San Francisco. And I think we all kind of, everyone here has a a Northern California connection, I believe, Rob, 
James, me, and David, of course. So I wanted to, from experience and also connecting it with why we're here today, because we're going to be holding a symposium on the museum definition and uh, connecting it with museology, museum studies, public history, uh, whatever name that it falls under. I, I wanted to recommend the Mission Dolores in San Francisco, which was founded as the Mission San Francisco de Asís in 1776. And it is the oldest mission in California and it is well preserved. It's the oldest building in San Francisco. It also has these wonderful aspects, the basilica, the chapel, the museum, the gift shop, and the cemetery. They do such a fantastic job of interpreting this diverse history of Native Americans, the Ohlone tribe, the Miwok tribe. They have a Indian tool hut uh, reconstructed in the cemetery. It's the burial ground of uh, approximately 5,000 Ohlone and also the Mexican history that's involved there. And it is part of the school program for fourth graders in California. And it was also a part of uh, a case study for one of the courses that I taught at San Francisco State University, and this is why I know of it. And I think it just all falls under what you have represented today, looking at diversity, looking at the Latin American experience in museums with you, David. That's a wonderful, wonderful recommendation. It makes me want to go over there right now. And as one of those kids that grew up in Northern California, I believe I, I believe it was fourth grade when I learned all about the the mission system, and I think we actually had to make models. We had to make uh, models yeah. of the uh, <laughs> of the mission. So I think I made mine out of I don't know styrofoam or some kind of a diorama thing or something. You you were one of those, yeah. <laughs> yes, I was. Is, you were one of those, and and just know that that program is. I think that program has been cut. That program has been threatened. Mm. To, you know, it used to be like a requirement, and I think. They're trying to undo it or something. So, great suggestion. Yeah, my uh, my diorama. I think, if I remember correctly, it ended up looking just like a medieval castle because I really had no <laughs> idea what I was doing, and I was like nine years old, and I didn't really care all that much. <laughs> I didn't visit it until 25, and I, at that point, didn't have the the push to make a diorama, but <laughs> I appreciated it nonetheless. <laughs> I think you should anyway. But uh, but putting that aside, what's your recommendation, James? Continuing on with the great Paris of the Pacific theme here, I was actually going to recommend a history book, not not an academic history book, but more of a popular history book, called Sutro's Glass Palace, the story of Sutro Baths wow. by John Martini. I took my, my girlfriend's family to the Cliff House last November. It was their first time visiting. And Sutro Baths really is one of those underrated tourist attractions. And maybe that's a good thing because you don't really want a lot of foot traffic down there. But it is, I mean, it, just looking at where the sea and nature has taken back parts of San Francisco and understanding the history of 
Adolf Sutro and what a formative individual this was in transforming Western San Francisco. The book itself talks about Adolf a bit, talks about some of his other projects, but the primary focus is Sutro Baths, which opened in 1896, I believe. It was a massive undertaking. This giant glass and wooden construction with heated baths that channeled in uh, ocean water for public use. And then, you know, it ties in into the history of segregation and desegregation in California, but also the impact that Sutro himself had and how this massive project did not really become the moneymaker that that it could have. Uh, it really, in many ways, wasn't uh, his most successful venture, even though it did last for quite a while. But uh, the book itself has a number of great photographs, talks about the building of the baths, gives you diagrams of them, and really does bring to life what I think, when you, especially when you talk to tourists, um, an underappreciated segment of San Francisco history. Uh, and Sutro himself was instrumental in the development of San Francisco. So I really do recommend this book. Wonderful, wonderful suggestion. I love yeah. that place. Yes, it's it's so interesting to try and imagine what the baths were like, and you can see the foundations of the baths. You know, it's it's just that's a that's a great great suggestion, James. Oh, it's such a beautiful place too, and I mean, it's it's kind of the gateway for being able to hike up along the trails to eventually see San Francisco or, or the Golden Gate Bridge one way. The other way, you can walk down to the Cliff House, uh, look out the windows at the sunset, and then continue down to Ocean Beach, which is just a fabulous uh, sprawling beach in San Francisco, completely different from the uh, the manicured beaches of Southern California, but beautiful in its, in its own right. Yes, and I would say museum-wise and history-wise, the interpretive center there is done very well. Yes. So don't forget that. And uh, it's a new modern building and, and has great books and well, I, I didn't get the memo that we were talking about California and all of these, but <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to go off go off track a little bit. I just want to mention the April 2018 issue of National Geographic, where they are tackling the issue of race, and the cover story is basically on the fact that race is, you know, it's a human construct. It's not based in science. It's not based in biology. It is something that we've made up. We as people have made up mm. to set ourselves apart from other people, to classify people, to try to explain why some, I don't know, some civilizations are more successful than others. It's, but it's, but it's, it's completely constructed, of course. It's not actual, there's no actual nature behind it, no science behind it. And that's, of course, not a very radical idea. I mean, people have been saying that for years. But what's interesting with what National Geographic has done is that they hired a historian and some other people to take a look at their back issues and talk about how National Geographic, the magazine, has covered race over the years. And, of course, they've uncovered all kinds of amazing stuff, which today is absolutely reprehensible. But, of course, it made sense at the time. And so they found, you know, images of people in areas of the world. I mean, we've all seen National Geographic photos of other areas of the world where you'll have people that would be called savages. They're called uncivilized. They're always shown as naked. The implication being that, you know, these are people living in a state of nature. They don't have civilization like ours, that kind of thing. And they found captions where they would talk about uh, there was one where there was um, in 1916 where they talked about Aboriginal Australians where the captions called them savages who, quote, rank lowest in intelligence of all human beings, unquote. <laughs> and so the issue in April of 2018 is all about National Geographic kind of starting the process of coming to terms with their role in perpetuating racial stereotypes over the years and 
how do we go forward from there? And so it's they're promising it's going to be an ongoing conversation. That issue that I talked about has a bunch of different stories on things like the, the, the cover story is twins. One twin has black skin, one twin has white skin, and it's perfectly natural the way it happened, but it just demonstrates kind of the constructed nature of race because you have these two kids that are identical in every way except skin color. So it's 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 an interesting issue, and I've, I'm looking forward to reading the rest of it. I've, I've read through a few articles, but they've got a bunch more that I want to look at. And so anyway, this is hopefully going to be an ongoing story for the National Geographic, and it's obviously going to be an ongoing story in the, in the, the rest of American culture and society. So this is just an interesting marker in all of that. Yeah, it's such an important topic to be talking about and understanding, especially in the larger consciousness, because in academics, we've discussed uh, race as a construct and gender as a construct for for decades. What does that really mean? And then at what point does the general public just see that as ivory tower talk that doesn't have relevance as far as they think relevance in the uh, the everyday world? You know what I mean? It's one thing to talk about the construct of race and the construct of gender, and it's another thing to completely be able to change the way that people look at it. So, but you have to start the conversation somewhere. Yeah. And so they're starting it with actually reproducing the images and the captions that accompany them just to kind of show people that, whoa, okay, things were discussed differently then. And it's not that we've fixed the problems now, but we have to acknowledge the problems and go forward to try to solve these problems. Yep. There's a movie that came out last year, The Lost City of Zed, or Z, depending on if you're American or not. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's about Percy Fawcett and uh, the discoveries that he made in the early 20th century and how he had discovered, I think it was in Bolivia, the ruins that he discovered. And um, he brought these findings back to Europe, and uh, the white Europeans absolutely were, um, they could not believe that a subhuman or unevolved race could possibly make something rivaled or that was that was the equivalent or might have even rivaled something from the uh, ancient Mediterranean world. It's a pr- pretty interesting story in and of itself. Um, I'm not sure if the, how well the, the film comes across, but, but the story itself kind of connects to that. Based on a book that was published a few years ago, too? Yep, exactly. Social Darwinism. Yeah. Yes. Okay, well, all that sounds great. Uh, David, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, James. Thank you, Susie. What yes, thank you so much, David. Thank you. Get out there and solve some of our issues, you guys. <laughs> I'll do that. <laughs> Try <Yeah>. it. <laughs> Maybe after lunch, but I'll do that. Yeah, lunch. Right, right. <laughs> I'll see you on California Street. <laughs> Hopefully. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, as always, send me an email at snhuhistory at gmail.com. For James Fennessy, Susie Chung, and David De La Torre, I am Rob Denning. Au revoir. I'm sure that was horrible French, and I apologize to all the listeners in the audience who speak French. I will never do it again. Mea culpa. Goodbye. Hello, and welcome to Filibustering Museology a podcast series where we discuss what historians... Ugh, I'm never going to get that right. We have a mob of Californians. We have a... And we have a mob of Californians, either native or transplants, with us here today. And there's a dog crawling... No, dog. Ugh. <laughs>